This podcast does not constitute financial or investment advice. It is for educational, general information and entertainment purposes only. Please consult with your own financial advisor before making any financial decisions. Money is something that gives us options, right? Yes, they say that there's a limit beyond which, you know, money doesn't make as much of a difference in terms of happiness in your life. But I'm working in a part of the world where people are very, 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 very far away from that limit, right? So if we can get them closer to that limit, you know, there's no diminishing returns when you're earning less than a dollar a day. You're listening to Banking on Girls, the podcast that explores the importance of financial literacy for girls and young women. And I'm your host, Marina Batmiwala. Join me on this journey to uncover insights and inspiration. My guest today is social entrepreneur Mira Mehta, the founder and CEO of Tomato Joss. Mira attended Ivy League colleges, worked for an investment management firm, and did a four-year stint with the Clinton Foundation in Nigeria. But she didn't find her true calling until she followed her dream of starting a fully integrated tomato farming and processing agribusiness in Nigeria, all in the hopes of finding a solution to alleviate the extreme poverty she witnessed in that country. From its relatively humble beginnings, Mira is now steering her company towards a multi-million dollar global business. Hi, Mira. Welcome. Hi, Marina. So, Mira, you were born to a Parsi Zoroastrian Indian father and a Finnish mother. You grew up in the United States. You are literally a citizen of the world. And yet, moving from the United States to start an enterprise in Nigeria to help solve the problem of global poverty still seems like such an incredibly courageous thing for a young woman to do on so many levels. How did you get the idea of your company, Tomato Joss? Well, thanks for that, Marina. And, you know, it's a pleasure to be on, on your podcast today. I got the idea for the Tomato Joss company for tomato processing, essentially from being in Nigeria. I had left my work at an asset management company outside of New York to do something that I felt was more closer to quote unquote helping people than selling mutual funds. And when I first moved here, you know, I was doing a lot of traveling around northern Nigeria and it's just a very obvious problem. It's like, oh, there are so many tomatoes and there are certain times of year when there is this oversupply of tomatoes. And then Nigeria is a country that consumes a lot of tomatoes and they eat tomato paste in a lot of key dishes. It's a key ingredient. And so, you know, the very naive young me was like, well, why not just connect demand and supply? Like there's all these tomatoes, Nigerians eat tomatoes. Let's just make the tomato paste locally because all the tomato paste was being imported mostly from China. So the idea sort of seemed very obvious. Obviously, it is much, much harder than just saying supply and demand to make it work. As I realized, you know, I've been trying to work in a crop that is agronomically one of the hardest crops to grow. Tomatoes are extremely sensitive to basically everything and they're extremely perishable. And I'm working in one of the hardest countries in the world to do business. Nigeria has lots of infrastructure challenges, lots of political challenges, lots of macroeconomic challenges lots of security challenges. So the answer to why isn't somebody already doing this is because, you know, nobody was dumb enough to tackle it <laughs> until I came along, I guess. Okay. And the name Tomato Joss has a couple of meanings, right? Yes, that's right. So Joss is a city in Nigeria. It's not actually where we're located, but 
It's a city that is known for fruit and vegetable production and the tomatoes that come from Joss and sell in the Lagos and Port Harcourt markets, which are sort of the large cities in Nigeria, they usually fetch a premium. So the, the term tomato Joss sort of has a indication of quality around it. And also as a fun sort of branding thing, the term tomato Joss is sort of a Nigerian slang for a sweet girl. You might call your girlfriend your tomato Joss because she's so sweet and she's so fresh. She's so juicy. She's so ripe. So we figured this was a way to create a brand that was immediately grounded in being Nigerian, made by Nigerians for Nigerians, and gave us the ability to have a little bit of fun when we do our marketing. So what exactly is a for-profit social enterprise? There are probably as many answers to that question as there are people who claim to run them. But for me, I think a a for-profit social enterprise is a business that is focused on, you know, the bottom line, it's profitability, but that has structured its operations so that its profitability depends on the profitability and the well-being of the community in which the business operates. So that's a lot of buzzwords. I guess I can try and give you an example of what that means to me. We have set up our farming and sourcing model in such a way that it's actually more cost effective for us to work with smallholder farmers and to buy produce from them than it is for us to run a large farm on our own. So it's sort of like a a win-win scenario. The, The farmers are winning because they make incredible yield improvements to their crops. They're able to improve their yields by up to 10 times. On average, it's about eight times what they would be making without working with us. And their profitability shoots way up. And we win because we can consistently source the raw material that we need to make our retail product. And we can actually source it at globally competitive prices. And it's easier for us to grow through the farmers than to grow the tomatoes ourselves. So to me, that's like an example of a for-profit social enterprise. Another example, and this might be jumping into other parts of the conversation, but one of my sort of professional role models is Jamshedji Tata, the original Tata from the you know Tata Industries. And he created all these things in his companies that made his workers more comfortable. So for example, he was the first person to introduce the idea of a crash inside his, you know, looms, his milling or the cotton looms. And that enabled women to, you know, work more comfortably because their children were close by and were being well cared for. And that was a way that he could actually boost productivity of his staff by providing them with a service that enriched their lives. So to me, those kinds of things are what a social enterprise means. Wonderful. And you literally devised the business plan for this company in your second year at Harvard Business School. How have your goals progressed from that time and what are your goals for the future? Well, my goal is, you know, hopefully to personally enrich myself. That hasn't happened yet, but also to make an impact and to make a difference and to create economic agency and economic freedom for people in a part of the world where they don't really have access to that. You know, when I was working at the Clinton Foundation, I felt like every time I went to a hospital and it was, you know, clinic day, you would see these long, long, long lines of people waiting to get their free, quote unquote, free medication. And it was usually women and children. And I would think to myself, you know, every woman that's waiting in this line, right, 
She's waiting for a drug that is free, but she has paid a price to get here, right? She has paid bus fare. She might have walked for hours. She might be losing out on income. She might have lost a job because she skipped work to come here during a clinic day. You know, we don't know what she's given up to be in this line to get this quote unquote free drug. And I just felt like I wanted to create more options for people. And to me, you know, Money is something that gives us options, right? Yes, they say that there's a limit beyond which, you know, money doesn't make as much of a difference in terms of happiness in your life. But I'm working in a part of the world where people are very, 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 very far away from that limit, right? So if we can get them closer to that limit, you know, there's no diminishing returns when you're earning less than a dollar a day. The extra dollar that you make is having a significant impact on your life and on your well being. And so for me, that became much more important than just trying to figure out if the drugs are available on clinic day. So then when you think back to your youth, how important were your early influences in the way you think about money now? My parents never explicitly talked about money, but I think when I really started to realize sort of like what money kind of like meant was probably when I was in in seventh grade. I remember being in elementary school and my parents had always prioritized education for me and my brother. They put us in private schools and pretty much spent sort of all of their disposable income beyond like food and housing and shelter on education for my brother and me and on our sort of like extracurricular activities. I played the violin, for example, right? So I was in these private schools, but I was like not popular and I was this like nerdy kid and It wasn't until I moved schools and I went to this pretty elite middle and high school in Boston. And I realized that money is part of what is shaping these social circles, right? And so, you know, the cool kids tend to be the rich kids whose parents are also friends and are multi-generational residents of Boston as opposed to like children of immigrants, right? Most of my friends were kids who were first-generation Americans like me, whose parents came from somewhere else to America, you know, and who didn't have that same sort of like social class or social standing. Not that I necessarily wanted to be popular, but it was just something that I noticed. And I think I did have, you know, aspirations. Well, I don't want to be driving my parents like 1979 Volvo station wagon. These girls are driving like brand new SUVs that their parents bought them on their 16th birthday, you know, and those kinds of things started to stand out of like, wow, you know, there are girls that can get new outfits every time the new Delia's catalog comes out, right? And I'm like, sort of like, how can I babysit so I can like get the next cool nail polish color because I certainly can't afford a pair of jeans. So I think, you know, stuff like that made a difference and just made me want to be able to afford those things. But I think that like, I also really wanted to be able to save. I also really, you know, the idea of getting in debt and having, you know, any kind of debt was something that I never wanted to see. I had my first bank account when I was seven. And I remember only ever wanting to see the statement value go up. I never, ever, ever wanted to see the statement value go down. So how influential were your parents in your early financial literacy, understanding how, you know, you just mentioned, you know, your bank account. Not everyone has a bank account when they're a kid. So How influential were your parents in this whole process? I think they were very influential. You know, I'm a Zoroastrian, as you are, and we have this religious ceremony usually sometime in, you know, childhood. I had my Nafjad ceremony when I was seven. And through the sort of ceremony, I, I guess, parents, friends and things gave us 
cash gifts. My brother and Mia ended up with $200, which is why my mom opened this bank account for me. And she was like, this is a lot of money. We're putting this into a bank. This is your bank card. This is how it works. You're going to get a statement every month. And she explained that to me. And like, I would look at those statements every single month. And when I, you know, earned money through, I don't know, I guess when I was young, I wasn't really earning any money. But when I started to babysit at age 12, 13, 14, you know, I always wanted to put at least some money in the bank of what I had earned because I wanted to get a statement balance to go up. My parents encouraged me to, to do what I wanted to do and just to be confident generally because I think that in general, being confident with numbers, my parents really pushed academic excellence and excellence in mathematics as well as writing. And that led me to, at age 14, running my first lemonade stand with kids that I babysat. And I did this whole math, you know, I didn't know how to use Excel, but I did it on paper. I was like, okay, this is how much it'll cost me to buy lemonade. This is how much it'll cost me to buy cups. This is how much it'll cost me to buy ice. You know, this is how much it'll cost me to do X, Y, Z. I can sell the lemonade at this price. If I subtract the cost of the cups and the cost of the lemonade and the cost of the ice, I can make this much money in a day. And if I have my two babysitting kids out there selling the lemonade, they're way cuter than me. And we are going to sit on a busy intersection. They're going to sell way more than me. And so they did that and we did that. And then I split the profits with my, my babysitting charges. And so we all ended up making money and we all learned about sort of revenue versus costs of goods sold. And it was a fun exercise. And my mom entertained it. She fronted me the money to buy the supplies and you know got her money back at the end of the day. And she encouraged me to do that. You know, another example, I said I played the violin. But when I was 14, I decided that I wanted to play the violin on the street for money because I used to walk around in Harvard Square and see all these people, you know, playing the violin in the subway, playing the violin on the street. So I went to, you know, the permit, whatever place where you get your busting permit from the Cambridge City Hall. My mom had to come with me because I was underage. I got my permit and I used to play... <laughs> the violin in the streets for money because I was like, this is a way I can earn money. And again, it was probably a weird thing for a 14-year-old kid to do, but my mom encouraged it, right? And my, my dad encouraged it. My dad's an entrepreneur. He started a company when he was 44. My mom had to work multiple jobs. She would work at night. She would work all the time to make sure that we had enough cash to put our food on the table and to keep us in the green or in the black. And so they, they really encouraged me. They never made it feel like we didn't have enough money, but they always encouraged me whenever I wanted to do something like that. And who are your biggest influences now on your business? Are your parents still influential on the way you are growing your business? Do you have other mentors? Yeah, my parents are hugely, hugely influential for me. Family is really important for me. I'm blessed to have a family that is very close. My dad is an entrepreneur who ended up becoming very successful after running a company for 30 plus years. And my mom, she didn't ever run a formal company, but she ran our lives. And you know, we, we like to joke, my brother is an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur. My dad is an entrepreneur. And my mom is the CEO of like the meta conglomerate, right? Because she sort of manages all of us as we manage our business. So, you know, my dad, I, I asked for advice all the time. Sometimes I don't like what his advice actually is, but it typically ends up being correct advice. Beyond that, you know, not people that I know personally, but I'm a huge admirer of Phil Knight, the CEO of Nike. I would recommend everybody to read his book, Shoe Dog. I think he's incredible. 
Tina Brown, who was the head of Vanity Fair magazine in the 80s, is another major influence for me. And she also has a book called The Vanity Fair Diaries. Another major influence for me is this woman, Coel Tamai, who was the founder of Musa Yogurt. I think sort of what all of these people have is they have a great level of authenticity about what they were doing and why they were doing it and how they ran their teams and how they ran their businesses. That really resonates for me. Now, you are on the ground with the farmers that you are training and working with in Nigeria, growing tomatoes. You've talked about having to originally sort of try to change the behaviors of the farmers out there to try and increase their productivity and output. Have there been any particular challenges with young women who have come into your organization to work with the tomato growing business? There's been a lot of challenges. So Northern Nigeria is part of the world where Men have multiple wives where women are often married off very, very young at very young ages, age 12, age 13, age 14, and where women don't have the same kind of rights to land use or to finances. Many women, you know, share a cell phone with their husband, don't have their own bank account, don't have their own dependents, don't have their own land. So when we were first getting started, we really wanted to prioritize women because all the research always says that when you empower a woman, you're empowering an entire family. When you empower a man, you're pretty much just empowering that one person, right? And that money doesn't go as far and it doesn't get used for the same thing. So we really wanted to target women uh, farmers in our program. In the first year that we did our program, we had three women and their own husbands, like in some cases, were, you know, mocking them, telling them, you know, you're not going to be able to pay back your loan. You're going to go to jail. I'll be seeing you in jail you know, and really sort of discouraged them. And they were sort of like the laughing stock of the village because they were trying to do this program and trying to do things that only men, quote unquote, should be doing. And then at the end of the season, the women were just like, okay, can you come help me harvest my corn? Because um, we, we started with maize, it's a little bit easier than tomatoes. And lo and behold, you know, these three women had gotten yields that were more than double, more than triple their husband's yields. And suddenly the men are like, I want to be in this program. You know, okay, if my wife wants to go to the farm, I just tell her no problem. Anytime she wants to go to the farm, she's allowed to go to the farm, right? And suddenly the narrative switched. And suddenly these women are able to buy things that they want to buy, right? If they need a new roof on the house, if they want to buy another business, one of the women in our program invested in her own ice business. She now makes ice, you know, she has a refrigerator, she's hooked it up to electricity, she has the money to buy petrol to fuel her freezer, right? And so we really try to make these changes and give people agency, right? And you can choose what you're going to do. You don't have to rely on your husband who may or may not be bringing enough home for you to feed the family. Now, you also help some of your farmers with financing. And I'm wondering if you've had a similar experience to the Grameen Bank that specializes in microfinance found that giving loans to women was very successful in that their payback rates were a very high percentage of their loans were paid back sort of on time. And it was a very successful undertaking from a social point of view as well. So have you found that experience? We definitely have. I'll say 
you know, not to get too technical into the weeds of our program, but our program has had in the past two legs. One was an ingrower leg where farmers come into the land that we, you know, have a long-term lease on and they farm land inside our property. And the other was an outgrower program where the farmers will farm on their own land. And in the early days, what we had sort of decided was that farmers would come in and be what we call model farmers or ingrowers for three or four years, learning how to do everything, you know, the way that Tomato Joss wants them to do it, because we're trying to change over 200 behaviors in the farmers, everything from fertilizer application to weeding, to the plant spacing, to irrigation, all these different things. Women absolutely were much more open to trying to do something in a new way than men and typically ended up getting higher yields than the men as a result because they were less wedded to, well, this is how I've always done it for 20 years. They were more willing to listen. But when we had the women leave the model farm and go out to become outgrowers, their performance slipped dramatically, much, much more than the men. Of course, the performance drop-off was there in both cases, but we found that women were much, much less able to command labor because there are still all these cultural norms where a woman doesn't feel comfortable hiring an external laborer that's a man and telling him what to do. And even if she does, the men really don't want to hear what she has to say and don't want to do it the way that she wants them to do it. And so even though she's been trained in all of these behavioral changes on the farm, she's not able to affect those changes outside of the tomato jaws land without sort of our support basically saying, hey, look, you need to do what she's telling you to do. So we've actually adapted and, and readapted our models so that we're only farming with the model farm program now. We're only having farmers farm within our, our land allocation and our leased land and subleasing it out to farmers rather than having them be outgrowers. The other reason for that is because of security challenges in our environment. We have a lot of bandits in the area and there's a a lot of fear from the local farmers and villagers about going out into the bush to farm. They would rather farm on our land where we have sort of fencing and security. And how big is your land now? So we have 500 hectares of farmland. That's a little over a thousand acres. And, you know, not all of that is being farmed right now. About a little over half of it is being farmed right now. We're working on developing additional land and being able to bring on more farmers as we do that. So, Samira, it seems to me it doesn't matter where you live in the world. Financial literacy is a critical life skill for girls. What advice do you have for parents raising girls in today's world? Well, first of all, I think just encouraging confidence in girls is so important. Whatever it is that your daughter is interested in, you know, be interested in it too, right? And encourage them. And especially if it might be something that's not quote unquote traditionally feminine, you know, I think encourage girls to be in touch with all the different aspects of themselves because as they gain confidence in whatever it is, they will bring that confidence into other areas of their lives. But that being said, I would suggest strongly that you encourage your children and your girls to enjoy math and be good at math. Make math fun. There's so many ways to encourage, you know, mathematical excellence or at least mathematical literacy through games, through Kumon math, through all these different methods. And I really think that when you're not as intimidated by something, you know, you're much more likely to sort of go into it. 
I'm not a huge fan of all these like, send your children to entrepreneur camp when they're six, because you don't know if they actually like that. But again, you know, look for openings and ways to encourage your child to learn about both budgeting and saving and investing, right? Open a bank account for your child if you can. You'd only have to put maybe $30, $40 in it. You don't have to put, you know, all this crazy money into a nest egg, but encourage your child to understand what that means. And again, make it fun. Yes. And you raise a really great point because I once heard uh, educators say that math really does unlock the keys. It's the keys to unlocking the universe. And that is such a powerful truth and so important to cultivate in all children and especially girls. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Mira, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Where can our listeners go to learn more about Tomato Joss? Sure. Tomato Joss has a YouTube channel. We also have a website, www.tomatojoss.net. We are on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Team Tomato Joss. And I'm also active on Twitter with the handle at Shouts and Miras. So you can follow us on any and all of those locations. And yeah, on YouTube, there's a bunch of other interviews that I've given over the years and that other members of my team have given. So, you know, we'd love you to follow us, follow our journey and, you know, reach out. Mira Mehta, thank you so much. Thank you too. Thank you for listening to the Banking on Goals podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate the podcast and be sure to hit subscribe or follow so you can receive notifications of new episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and at bankingongirls.com.